comes up and preach. So I would invite all of you to uh, turn to Genesis chapter 10 and follow along as we read our passage this morning. Genesis chapter 1. Oh, go ahead and stand. Yes, please. Genesis chapter 10. And can you turn down my mic a little? Thank you. These are the generations, the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Tagama, and the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittimum, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Hut, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabata, Ramah, and Sabatica. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Reboth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Laabim, Naphtuim, Partruthsum, Kalsluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaftratorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, the Girgashites, and the Hivites, the Archrites, and the Sinites, the Ardivites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Therefore, afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adamah, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages and their lands, their nations. To Shem also, the father of the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arparshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpathshad fathered Selah, and Selah fathered Eber. To Eber was born two sons. The name of the first was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shephelah, Hazarmavath, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, and Obal, Abamal, Sheba, Ophirim, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Shafar to the hill country in the east. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans, the son of Noah, according to the genealogies in their nations. And these are the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Please be seated. Thank you. I know you're just in uh, Genesis chapter 10 there, but if you could turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 2 is where we're actually going to start. That wasn't a give and take. It was a little bit of a, we need to understand what's going on here. 
Let me uh, open up with prayer, and then we'll dive into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, thank you again that your Word is active and alive, and it cuts down to the very core of who we are. As we come to a passage today that we will see that there's so many things in it that we miss because we so quickly move on. We are people that are quick to move on to the next thing and don't spend enough time lingering. So the only Father, help us to linger in your word today and see these, the truths that you have laid for us in your holy word. Help us now. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So what has been said, and I tried to look this up to see who said it, and the answer is everybody has said it, so I'll just say it has been said. If you do not know where you came from, if you do not know where you came from, you will not know where you're going. If you don't know where you have come from, you have no idea to know where you're going to be going next. We live in a day and age, and it is very clear, it's almost in some ways unprecedented in some ways, that we live in a day and age where history is under attack. There is an actual effort in most of our places of higher education to literally rewrite the past. And then when we can rewrite the past, then we can create a new narrative of the present. If we ignore the past or even try to rewrite it and say that this actually happened this way instead of actually the way it did happen, we can literally create a new narrative of what's going on. Or as a politician, I've heard said many times this, we create a vision of what can be unburdened by what has been. So we create a vision of what can be unburdened by what has been. And literally what this politician was saying is we're going to create literally a new narrative without any at all looking at the past. And it's interesting, the reason why we live in a day and age where that takes place is because there is a theory that not only has infiltrated what we think about creation, but has infiltrated how we think as a culture. The theory of evolution clearly states that we have come from a lesser to a greater. And so if you follow the theory of evolution and apply it to history, we go from the lesser, the history in the past is not that important, we are getting better as time goes on. The theory of evolution teaches that you are improving, mankind is improving in this world. The problem with that is the teaching that the Bible tells us that at one time mankind was in the garden with God and we are actually degressing until one day God will redeem us all back to be with Him. And so as we look into the past as a biblical worldview, what we're going to see is we need to learn from the past, understanding of what's going on so we can understand what is happening now and looking to the future. Because the Bible tells us that things are not getting better, the Bible is clearly going to teach us things are only going to get worse until the Lord returns. And so, when we come to the Bible, we look at the Bible and we're reminded of this, that the Bible is God's, a God-given narrative explaining the history of mankind. The Bible is a God-given narrative explaining the history of mankind, and not only that, but God's gracious, redeeming work. Not only to describe where we came from, but actually that Christ came to deal with that issue. So without understanding what God has done in the past, what's at stake? If we do not understand what God has done in the past, what is literally at stake is the falling into unbelief. And you're in Judges chapter 2 here. And I want to read to you a passage, and we'll start actually in verse 6, and we're going to go Judges chapter 2, verse 6, and we'll work our way through this short chapter here. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. 
The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, all who had seen the great works the Lord had done for Israel. So we see here, Joshua gets done his speech, the people disperse to their places, and everyone's going to follow what God had said while Joshua's alive, as well as the elders that were alive during the time of Joshua. They're all going to be, going to be following after the Lord. Verse 8, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age 110. And they talks about where they buried him, and in verse 10, all the generations also gathered their fathers. And so what we see here is we have the closing of one generation. And when the closing of one generation comes, you're going to now need new leaders, you're going to need new this, you're going to need everything. There's going to be another generation that's going to come up. And we had one generation that faithfully served God, even to the point where all the elders and everybody else that was there, once the leadership has passed, now you have a rise of new leadership. And here's what happened in verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work He had done for Israel. So you have an ignorant generation now in charge. And what do they not know? They don't know about what the Lord has done, nor they don't even know the Lord Himself. So they don't know the works of God, nor do they not understand who God is. And so you're going to say to yourself, so what happens then? What happens when a generation arises that doesn't know their past, doesn't know that there is a sovereign ruling God over all the world, and doesn't even know that He has done anything? What takes place? Verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. What happens when we don't know the past and we don't remember the God who is an all-powerful God ruling over all things? You fall into unbelief. Not only unbelief, this is an ignorant unbelief where instead of going after God, you literally go the opposite way. And so, when we come to today's passage, back to Genesis chapter 10. We need to take this seriously. Because first of all, here's a truth that we believe and we hold very firmly here at this church. And if you're a member of this church... Um, you need to hold this firmly as well, that all Scripture is God-given and is profitable. So when we say all Scripture is God-given and is profitable, what do we mean by that? Let me help you out. The word A-L-L stands for all, and all means this would be Genesis chapter 10, is given to us by God and is profitable for us. Now, as Caleb was reading that for us, I want you to take a moment. What was going through your mind? Let me tell you probably the things that were not going through your mind. You were probably not saying, I need to take my life verse from this passage of Scripture. I'm pretty sure if any of you would say, what have been some key verses in your life? Most of you have not said somewhere in Genesis chapter 10. Let's be honest. Nor have I ever seen a coffee mug that said, coffee in Genesis chapter 10 is all I need to get me through the day. Nor have I had any, n never had this request, and don't be that person who requests it. When I'm by your bedside, when you're in pain, say, Tim, could you read something for me? How about Genesis chapter 10? All right. We will suffer through it together as we work through it. But let's be honest, there are certain parts of Scripture that have, we would call more meaning and depth for us, but there is not a part of Scripture that has no meaning for us to understand. 
And so we have to look at this and say, what are the things that God is teaching us by giving us this? Because one of the most important things we need to make sure we understand as we look at these lessons that I'm going to say, lessons found in the genealogies, without these names, we have no promised Messiah ever brought into this world. These names are moving us closer by one name after another to that promised Messiah. That center candle that we're looking forward to one day blowing out and lighting again to remind us ourselves of the promised Messiah has come. Now, what we need to do, we need to give ourselves a little bit of, of understanding of where we've been in Genesis to get this concept here. So one of the many themes of the book of Genesis is, again, we start with the book of Genesis where God reveals himself as creator, ruler, sustainer of all things, right? And as he's, we're working through that, we're going to get man's great rebellion, and God is going to say, through the woman, we're going to get this redeemer. And so one of the major themes of the book of Genesis is literally Genesis tracing the history of one particular family. And we're going to see this one particular family, this line that is traced. And it is traced, and it will be seen here as well, it is highlighted by one male member in each generation moving forward. So I'd like to give you an example. So far in the line, we have Adam, we have Seth, we have Enoch, we have Methuselah, we have Lamech, and now we have Noah. All right, I'll read those guys again. These are the line that we have so far. We have Adam, Seth, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Each one of those are on the line. And this line that we see passing forward here is really huge because what we're also reminding ourselves is when you go from Adam to Seth, Adam's son is Seth, and what is Seth born? A sinner in need of a Savior. And so we have one sinner after another. The Bible clearly teaches that the line of sin, the sin line, is passed down from the father to his children. And that's one of the reasons why we mention all the male names. It's not because the female names did not matter. It's to show us over and over again, one sinner having another sinner having another sinner having another, another sinner. That is why we need that break to get the Messiah. And what is that break going to come where we literally will have Mary's child be fathered by the Holy Spirit? This is why the virgin birth is huge. But let's give you a little bit bigger picture here. Genesis 1 through 11 is a universal struggle with sin. Sin is universal. All right, and then we're going to get to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to narrow down in to one family, but we're not there yet. We're just going to talk about sin, and you're going to, the answer to where is sin, and you're going to say everywhere. All right, you should be saying, is sin over there? And the answer is yes. Is sin over here? Yes. Sin is everywhere. It has literally filled the earth. And so, the biblical history is the story of God's plan with humanity. And we left off in the flood with remember this line, and we need to keep this line going all over and over and over again. God is long-suffering on man, not because of man being worth it, but in spite of man. God is long-suffering in spite of rebellious man. We're going to learn about these rebellions that they're going to do. And even in the genealogies, you're going to have some people literally named, we rebel, all right? So like, Let's, I want to make sure you're clear. Man is not neutral. Man is not just okay. Man is a sinner from the very birth. And all we're going to see is that sinners give birth to sinners. All right? This is why we, re, we cry out, God, give us someone to save us from our wretched state. Because what we have so far ringing in our ears is rebellion of all of the lines. The rebellion of all the lines, and then it comes down to the point where just Noah is not destroyed. 
So all of the generations before Noah were wiped out because of the rebellion, and now we're narrowing down once more to one guy and his kids. And we're going to see what happens with Noah and his kids. So we have a chapter here. In verse number 1, there we see these are the generations of the sons of Noah. All right, and the question is going to be, which line is it going to be, right? Is it going to be Japheth? Is it going to be Shem? Is it going to be Ham? Which one? I'll, like, I'll give you a little tune-in next time, and we'll talk a little bit about more of which one it's going to be. But what we're going to do now is look at this chapter. This chapter is also titled, The Table of the Nations, because this chapter is going to give us where we get all the nations from, if you didn't pick those up as you're going, this nation came from this thing, and so forth. So what we're going to do in this sermon today, I'm going to try to give you, I guess the best way you could describe it, lessons or nuggets from, of truth that as we walk through this for us to just look, look at and just pause and just say, what is this teaching? So the first one I'm going to say is that lesson number one is that order matters. It's interesting here is we're going to see the spreading out. It reminds me of a verse in Acts 17, 26 through 27, where Paul stands up and says, from one man came every nation. Guess what he's speaking to? to. Adam as well as Noah. From one man came every nation. Because what are we going to see here? All the nations are coming from Noah and his three sons. And also this, one of the most fascinating things, that in Acts 17, 27, it tells us that God determines not only where, but how long, and the boundaries of these nations. Nations are going to come, nations are going to go. God is the one that's in control of them. So let's look at what we see here. So in verses 2 through 5, we have the sons of Japheth. Now, you should see those in your notes there. The sons of Japheth are going to settle in the Greek-Europe area. So if your descendants are from the Greek-Europe area, you know who your great-great-whatever-granddaddy is in that area. That is where we get the, those that are settling up in that area. The sons of Ham are going to settle in the Canaan, the Middle East area, and then down through Africa and Egypt. And so that whole clan and that whole group are going to move in those areas as well. And then last but not least, we have the sons of Shem. The sons of Shem are going to be settling in the Middle Eastern area, but moving up on that fertile crescent all the way over to the Persian Gulf area. And the sons of Shem were going to get the Hebrews and the Arab world coming from the sons of Shem, which is interesting. Even to this day, they're having a little bit of a family feud right now over land and everything else going on. But all of these nations all descended from Noah's three sons. Now, it's interesting in the text, Shem is mentioned last, and a little bit of a spoiler for next week, it's mentioned last because we're going to see the narrowing down of even one of Noah's sons. We're going to get to the point where Abraham is a descendant of Shem moving forward, but we see them mentioned last. Also, another thing that we see here is that there's a list, if you were to count through, you're going to see a list of 70 different nations that are mentioned here. The idea of 70 is something that the Bible uses in a completeness. The idea that all the nations come from Noah and his sons. Thus then, to understand this, that if all the nations come from Noah and his sons, that should immediately already cause us to pause and understand this, that all prejudice or all, one superior nation or race over another is not acceptable in the narrative of Scripture. That one nation is somehow better than another or something else. Now again, that we need to, we need to make sure we think with clear thoughts here. As the world is spreading out and these nations are spreading out and these people are spreading out, you're going to get people living at different spots where there's going to be different resources, there's going to be different 
land areas that they're at and different whole nations and what they do. And some nations are going to be stronger than others just literally because of the people that are there. But it's not because of any type of superiority over one race over another. But guess what we're going to see out throughout all history, though? The battle of saying that one nation is more superior than another by its very nature. And hopefully as we look at this and see that all of them came from Noah and his sons, that we see that there is no spot for prejudice or racism in any way. Now, not only that, I think there's some times here, too, we need to pause and look at the second lesson that is in front of us here. Not only does order matter, not only does where they are placed in the text matter, we want to look at the historical events that are mentioned in these texts. As you were going through, hopefully you saw a couple. We see the, literally the first one in verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, sons who were born to them after the flood. So we see in the historical event saying, here are the kids that were born to these kids after the flood. Now we have to ask yourself, what does that mean? All right, that means that Shem, Ham, and Japheth have kids that are born after the flood. So if you have kids that are going to be born after the flood, most likely you're going to teach your kids about the flood. And as these nations spread out, guess what's going to go with them? Historical and their history about the flood. And guess what we find all over the world right now? If you look back in their, every nation's past, many of the nations all over the world, they will have historical stories of a flood. Now, you may say, well, I've done a little digging, Tim, and they are all different in some of them. Some of them have, like, you get the Epic of Gilgamesh, you have all these other things, and last time I checked, Gilgamesh is not the same as Noah, you know, and so, like, are these just things that happened? Well, let me help you out real quick. It's the same answer that comes to when we look at even the Gospels. All right, so if you look at the Gospels, the four Gospels, you will have four accounts of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Are they the same? No, they are different. All right, you look at these flood narratives. Are they the same? No, they are different. So what does that prove? Many, if you're not careful, say, well, it proves it didn't happen. I would argue the contrary. Because if you have a conspiracy, when you're coming before someone with a conspiracy, what do you do when the conspirators get together? You all make sure you get the same what? Story. And literally, they will tell you in, in the court world that eyewitnesses better not all have the exact same story because guess what the lawyers like to say then? You're lying because... An eyewitness account is not going to have the exact same story. You're going to all see it from your own different ways. And so they would actually argue the, the differences are, are actually bringing more credibility to the fact that it happened than the opposite way. It's interesting here that not only do we have these stories after the global flood, which would obviously be a massive thing to take place. Notice what we have here in verse 5. Look at verse 5. From these, the coastal people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans and the nation. So we have people that are living by the coast. Because, again, we live in a day and age where, sadly, evolution has not only impacted the way we think about the creation of the world, it has impacted the way we even look at civilizations in the past, because, again, civilizations of the past are not as thoroughly well put together as civilizations now as what evolution would teach us. What we find, then, is... Basically, if we look at human history through the lens of evolution, that no one was doing any type of seafaring until the Europeans got their act together and started exploring with Columbus and everything else. But what we're going to find, we actually look at the Bible and use the lens there, we will find that they were people that were long all over the world, traveling long before 
even as dates come on, they go, oh, people are traveling across the ocean even earlier. They're finding as they dig into archaeological things, they're finding that the Phoenicians and different things like this were crossing the, the Atlantic Ocean very early on. And we see these coastal people moving. We see them living by the coast. We see them exploring. And so we see that these people were not just ignorant cavemen, Neanderthals running around saying, ugh, these are people that actually were understood what they were doing. They built things that we even to this day don't even understand how the pyramids were fully built together. And all the other things were going. These were not ignorant idiots. These were people that were image bearers of God using their, their skills, sadly many times, <laughs> for their own glory instead of for the glory of God, but they were not idiots. It's interesting, we're introduced to a guy in verse 8. It says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And that's interesting there as we even look at that, that phrase in and of itself. So let me help you out. The word Nimrod, if you're wondering what that word means, it literally means we shall rebel. All right, that was his name. Okay, so like to help you out real quick, you know, if you call someone a Nimrod or anything else like in a derogatory term, you're calling them a rebel, all right, from the very heart of this. And what is Nimrod, what is he famous for? Establishing a city called Babel. Does anyone know what they did in Babel? Rebelled against God. We're going to build a tower to rebel against God. So the idea of Nimrod, first of all, yes, he was a mighty hunter, but he was a rebel against God. Now, just to help you out real quick, there's a group of people in uh, Watersmeet, Michigan, that I think were just looking for a mascot, but didn't read the context of it. And they're the mighty Nimrods is the name of this mascot, which clearly you can go, we're going to a scriptural passage, but we're not really going to read the rest of it type of deal. And literally, their, their mascot's name is We Shall Rebel. All right, and so as we're walking through the list of these people, we're seeing rebel after rebel after rebel. And not only that, in verse 11, from there he went on to build Assyria, which is Nineveh. Any of you understand what the Assyrian nation was all about? It's one of the most ruthless nations around. They literally, Assyria taught the Romans how to do crucifix. Because in the Assyrians, they were famous for the human shish kebab is the only way of describing it. Literally, they would take their enemies through the gut. They would not kill them. They would pick a, a huge stake and just keep l basically layering people on through the stomach all the way up through letting you all die of a guttural wound, which takes long periods of times. And they would just have stakes like that all around because the Assyrians did not take prisoners. They didn't deal with the whole POW thing. You just died. This is the nation that God is going to use to judge his own people. And guess where they came from? A group of rebels. And guess what the Israelites are going to do one day? Rebel against God. This is where we're starting to see the story of the narrative of Scripture coming. This is why we don't look to Nimrod for our saving. This is why we don't look to the nation of Israel. We look to God and God alone. Verse 25, another historical event that's here. Because remember, when we see historical events, we need to make sure we see the Bible is a trustworthy historical document. And it speaks about history. We need to understand it. Now, this is an interesting part here in this narrative where we see in verse 25 where it says, from in his day the earth was divided. All right, And now, this phrase, in his day the earth was divided, there's two things that this could be. We're not 100% sure exactly what they are, but there's either one, in his day the earth was divided, this is speaking of the time of the languages being divided and mankind spread out, 
Or it could also be there was a time where it is very clear that there were land bridges around and as the water was receding and going down back to its ocean spots, this was the time where finally the continents were starting to fully divide in the receding. This is where we have the land being divided. Either way, we have an historical event saying during his day, these things happened. So when Moses is writing this, we can go back to the time as we know when that took place. All right, so this is not a fable. This is an historical event. All right, this is why we argue that we believe very clearly that Genesis 1 through 11 is an historical document, not a fable or something else. These are historical things. You can go back and look to them because I would argue the text is written as a historical document. This is why we treat it as such. Now, there's a couple other larger principles that I want to look at. We, not only do we look at order, not only do we look at the historical facts in these genealogies, I want to look at God and human history. And so as you see these name after name after name, nation after nation after nation being mentioned, many of them that are fun to try to pronounce, and we could pronounce them differently each time we try them. What we see is a couple of things here. God cares about individuals. I want to make sure we're clear on that. The creator, the ruler of this universe cares about you individually. I think sometimes we miss that. Let me repeat it again. The creator cares about individuals. And not only that, he saves individuals. The creator cares about you individually and he saves individuals. There are billions upon billions of people here on this earth, and in our minds, we just sweep them all together. All right, there are some countries right now, if I were to ask you to find them, like Ubekistan, most of you have no idea where that is. All right, or is that even a place? Right? And so not only that do we wrestle with that whole people group that is there that we don't even know. But what does God know? He understands each one of us individually, and he saves individually. John 1.13 reminds us this, that we were born not by the will of man, nor by the will of the flesh, nor by blood, but by God. In John 1.13, it reminds us that you don't get to heaven on your parents' coattails. One of the most important things is each one of us will stand before God as an individual to give an individual account. It doesn't matter what your grandparents believed, what your parents believe, it only comes down to what you individually believe about the Son of God. And have you individually placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Because there is no riding in. Well, I went to CBC. That just, just tells us where you were on Sundays. That doesn't save you. That's why when we read these genealogies, each one stood in their own account one day before God and gave an account. Let's just help with that. Please, any of you guys that are having boys, let's not name them Nimrod. Let's, let's, all right, unless you're doing it because we are going to rebel, all right? That's a whole other issue we have to deal with. But even their own names were what? Rebellious against God. All of these names, when they are read, when you see them being read and you hear their names and 
all of them, my prayer is this, that we first of all understand that they're continually moving us to Christ, the promised one. Because when you hear that name read, I almost wanted to have Caleb come back and read that, and as we would read each name, we would go, and not the Messiah, and not the Messiah, and not the Messiah, and not the Messiah, because we need to feel that. Generation after generation after generation, male baby born after male baby born after male baby born, and not the Messiah, not the Messiah, not the Messiah, wait another kid, not the Messiah. All right, and we haven't even gotten to Abraham yet, and what are we finding out? We have a lot of not messiahs. And the promise, is it going to happen or not? I mean, most of us struggle when someone promises you something and you're like, okay, when's that going to be fulfilled? Because we can't put ourselves in the generation here. Generation after generation after generation dying without the Messiah being born. That's why when we say the long-expected one, it's a little bit of like an understatement. Because he's long-expected when He has finally come. In each one of these names we read, we see God's faithfulness in keeping the line going, not because of, but in spite of, man. Mankind had rebelled against God in the flood. We're going to see it in chapter 11 that mankind is not only going to rebel against God again, they're going to say, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a tower and make a name for ourselves. And let everybody know that we are going to be gods. And my favorite line in that, which I'd love to just jump to that and just say, we're not going anywhere for a while, is God comes down to see their tower. It's my favorite line. Oh, God, in the heaven who is sovereign over all, what does He do when man tries to rebel? He stoops down to see, what you guys working on down here? You think you're pretty special, huh? Each one of these names remind us of God's faithfulness of keeping the promise going, which He promised. I think we need to pause and think about that for a moment. God is not only good, but He is gracious. Gracious. A gracious God, in spite of your sin, He is gracious. Not only that, but what we see here is, not too long ago, we were, it was told by Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So every single time we have a kid born, what do we have? A blessing from God. And each one of these blessings from God, we're seeing God's long-suffering and giving them children. It's interesting here. There's a couple things that are telling in our own lives. A couple things that are truly telling in our own lives of how we think about the world in general. One of them is our view of children. There's a couple of views of children that we live in a day and age where these are the, the major thought. The modern view of kids is that kids get in the way of my life, my goals, and my dreams, and so I need to be able to determine when I'm going to have my children or not by either killing them in the womb because once they're born, it's not legal yet to kill them. But we will kill them in the womb so they don't interfere with my goals and my dreams. Trying to call a spade a spade. So children are seen as a nuisance or in the way. Another one view of children can be 
that someone would say, why in the world would you ever want to bring a kid into this world filled with evil and suffering? Why would you ever want to bring a kid into this world that's filled with evil and suffering? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. In Jeremiah chapter 29, we'll look at verse 4. Let me give you a little context here. The nation of Israel has rebelled against God, and God has told them, I'm going to bring another nation. Remember, this is the whole book of Habakkuk. The Chaldeans are coming, and you're not even going to believe it when I tell you they're going to come, and they have now come and taken the nation of Israel into captivity. The Babylonians will come three different times. The last time they will come to the nation of Israel, they'll wipe them off the face of the earth, but they've hit them up twice and taken some people into captivity. So Jeremiah, who is still living in Jerusalem at that time under a puppet king that's been set up by the Babylonians, is now writing to those who are in exile. Jeremiah will be taken with the rest of the crew the third time that Nebuchadnezzar once and for all comes and wipes out the nation of Israel there. And Jeremiah is writing a letter to the people that are in exile saying, here's how you live when you're living in a foreign world. Verse 4, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what he tells them to do. Build houses and live in them. But wait a minute, they're exiles. They should be getting ready to go home. Any moment they should be getting ready to go home. He tells them to do what? Build a home. Notice what he says next. Plant gardens and eat their produce. If you're planting a garden, you're at least hoping that you're going to be there when the Crops come in, right? So you're going to be in exile for a little bit. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Children are not something that you would want to bring into. Let's think about this. When you have a son and daughter, when you're a slave, what does your son and daughter become? Slave. So you're giving birth to a slave. What does Jeremiah tell? God said to do what? Have more kids. Multiply, he says, and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will find your welfare. How do we live biblically? Because historically, children are not valued until they can contribute to society. That's historically across the board. And the moment they can contribute, we're going to throw them into things, and then they finally have value. But biblically speaking, we see that children are a gift or a blessing from God. Children are to be taught the things of God. This is not the first time that Israel ever had to deal with this, because Israel, in one time, they were in Egypt, and they were slaves. And what God tell them to do? Keep having kids. Because what was the promise one day that they would have even when they were in slavery? That one day the promised land would come. And so when they had kids while they were in exile, when they had kids while they were in Egypt, they did this because they understood what was in front of them was not going to last. That their hope was in God, not in what they saw in front of them. And so even though we live in a sinful, evil world, we know one day Christ will return and redeem all of these things. And so we don't just look to the present right now to figure out what we should do. We look to what God has promised and say, yes, we see, yes, right now we live in a day and age where there's a lot of evil in this world. 
but the promise and hope that God gave us that one day we will dwell together with Him is that arching promise that has us point to Him and Him alone. So I would, in so, so many ways, summarize it this way. The way you view children exposes your faith and hope in God. The way you view children exposes your faith and hope in God. So we talked about a lot in the genealogies. Now, I want to help you out. There's so much more we could talk about. We could have gone through each name, talked about what each name meant, and everything else like that. But for sake of time, I just said, let's pick a couple of nuggets here. And so in wrapping it up, a lot has been said. There was a lot that we wrung out from this topic. But here's the thing we need to remind ourselves again. That at the beginning of Genesis 10, there was Genesis 9, there was Genesis 8, and all the way getting back to Genesis chapter 1. And Genesis chapter 1 is how we're supposed to read all of these things moving forward. In Genesis chapter 1, we clearly stated that God is the creator, the ruler over history, the sustainer of all things. So what do we see in Genesis chapter 10? God the ruler, the creator of history, and the sustainer of all things. And what is he sustaining? Mankind moving them forward to his son coming to redeem. And not only that, as once his son came and died on the cross to destroy death and sin, we see him continually ruling and sustaining history to when his son comes again. So as we look in the past, we can also see where we're going in the future. Where are we going? To God's glorious end where he will redeem all of us. And when we look at genealogies, we see God's faithfulness generation after generation after generation. And also we see a little bit of irony. Literally, we're living in a world with a bunch of family feuds going on all over the globe. But yet God will even bring those families together under the throne of grace. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the things that we had a chance to understand and grasp. There's so many more. But help us to be clear. To love you and to love the fact and submit to the fact that you are the great historian working all things together for your glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen.